If you take your Bible and go with me to John chapter 2 this morning, I want to conclude my sermon that I started last week, which is Jesus' cleansing of the temple. And as you see in your bulletin, if you're taking notes, in our series called Conversations with Christ, if you're new to our church, I've been walking through the Gospel of John. And this morning I want to look at this cleansing, which is the second sign of seven specific signs that John says he uses in his Gospel, culminating with an eighth sign, which is the number of new beginnings in the Bible, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what I wanted to put to everybody, and I started this thought last week, was what happens when the lamb becomes the lion? Because everybody loves meek and mild Jesus. But what happens when you come face to face with the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And so last week I started out with this question which I want to answer today, which is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? If you remember, I walked through a bunch of things and I quoted an old Scottish preacher. His nickname was Rabbi. It was John Duncan. And he said, you have three options with Jesus. Christ either one." deceived mankind by conscious fraud. That was one one of the options you had. Or two, he himself was deluded and self-deceived. In other words, as C.S. Lewis would say, he was a lunatic. Or three, he was divine. There was no getting out of this trilemma, he said. These are your options. And again, I spent quite some time talking about Watchman Nee and C.S. Lewis and others last week who posed and wrestled with this question of who is Jesus. So today I want to read this passage. I want to summarize my first two points. And then I want to finish by talking about the third and fourth point and bring it all in with a very strong application, I pray, by God's Spirit. So let's look at John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 this morning. Beginning in verse 12, where John writes, now remember, this is the second sign. The signs are there according to the end of John. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John says these things. He said Jesus did all kinds of things. He performed all kinds of miracles. He said all kinds of stuff, but he said these things I have chosen. I have picked out these signs and the reason he picked them out was so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by by believing you would have life in his name. And this is where we're headed. This is where our train is going. We have already looked at the wedding of Cana. That was the first sign where we saw Jesus as the, the rescuer, the provider, where he gives us more than we could ever hope for as he turned those purification pitchers of water into beautiful wine, more than this party could ever have. And it was a picture, a sign that when Christ comes, he gives you, he takes your sin and he takes care of it and turns your sorrow into rejoicing. Now put that up against this passage beginning in verse 12. And after this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, which would become his community home base. This was the hometown of Peter. I've been to Capernaum. I've seen what we believe to be Peter's home. I've been in the synagogue that is there that likely Jesus stood there and interacted with people. And so he was down in Capernaum with his mother and his brother, so his family, but notice, and his disciples. At least six of the twelve we know from chapter one. 
And they stayed there for a few days. Now, as I told you last week, Passover was like Christmas. They spent a month preparing for it. Jerusalem was feverishly dealt up, but tombs were whitewashed and things were swept and cleaned and all this. And there was great anticipation as, as people from all over the nation of Israel and re really all over the Roman Empire would make their pilgrimage back to, Rome, back to Jerusalem so they could celebrate the Passover. And so verse 13 says, and The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And very understandably, Jesus being the firstborn of Mary... Because according to Jewish law, you dedicated the firstborn son to God. And so this was his, his responsibility by birth. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem and verse 14 in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Now the oxen and sheep were what you were supposed to sacrifice. If you were poor, you could settle for a pigeon. We heard about it in the video. And he noticed that there was those who were selling the oxen, the sheep, and the pigeons. But notice and there was money changers there as well. And we learned last week that these were people because on the temple you had to, to use currency in the temple money because it had no images. All other images in Rome had pictures of either Caesar or other pagan gods. And so this was considered unclean. So you couldn't use it in the temple. You couldn't converse back and forth. And so these guys were doing it at great exchange. They were profiteering. In fact, I was telling Steve in my studies this week, I discovered that they, they estimate that Ananias the high priest and his band, the Sanhedrin, turned a profit of roughly $300,000 during the Passover in first century terms. Steve and I were trying to figure out what would $300,000 in the first century be worth today. Let's just say it's billions. And verse 15, as you heard in the video, in making a whip of cords, he drove them all, all, not some, not most, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, did you notice this? Not those who sold the oxen and the lambs. He tells those that sell the pigeons, take these things away. Because this, it was the pigeons that they made the most money. They profited most on the backs of the poor. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. I lack the ability as a human being to mimic what must have been the fiery, authoritative tone of God in the flesh as he did this. But look at the reactions in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's one reaction. In verse 18, we see a very different reaction. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, It has, been, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And again, I want you to hear and feel the thick sarcasm, the defensiveness in it as they said it. But notice, John gives us 
the background or the, the interpretation of this, he said, verse 21, but Jesus, he was speaking about the temple of his body. <coughs> and then we get the aftermath, verse 22. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, so now John fasts forwards to the resurrection of Jesus, and he says, when he was therefore raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And, and look at what happens. And they believed, notice, the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. And may God add His blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Last week I shared with you my first two points. If you're new, I encourage you to write these down so you can go over them. If you're here last week, maybe review. Number one, as we look at this passage, I want you to get in modern terms of 2017 in the Church of Canada, United States, in the Western Hemisphere, when religion goes commercial, God's not glorified. When church becomes business, God is not glorified. I quoted Richard Halverson last week, and I'll quote it again if Steve can get it up on the screen. In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome where it became an institution. Next it moved to Europe where it became a culture. And finally it moved to America where it became an enterprise. <coughs> Folks, nobody loves the ability to put good resources and all these types of things in people's hands. But as a person, that you can trust me, I've gone to too many conferences to tell you I have seen firsthand with my own eyes the ugly underbelly of when church becomes a business. And there's politics. And there's unwritten rules of social standing. And often, just like in the first century temple, it is the poor and the disenfranchised that suffer at the hands of the self-righteous. And so when religion goes commercial, God's not glorified. I showed you a picture of the Temple Mount last week. I don't know again, Steve, if we have that or not, if you can put that up there. It is. <coughs> that is a picture of what Herod's temple, Herod the Great spent almost 50 years, actually at the point of this writing it had been 46. It actually took another seven years after this writing for them to finish it. The irony is just when they finished this, it was only a few short years later that Titus would come in AD 70 and destroy it completely. But it is said that in that outer court there where the temple's in the middle, in this outer court and along all those pillars that you see underneath there, that's all called Solomon's Colonnade. And that's where these shops would have been sent up. And remember I told you, first century people, they, they made fun of Ananias or Annas the high priest and they called them the bazaars of Annas. Basically, he had turned the place where the Shekinah glory of God was supposed to go and they had turned it into, as I said last week, the Avalon Mall. It was a place where you went for business. And the very place that was supposed to say come and worship was come and see if you can buy your way to God. And they say two million people can congregate inside that open court, which is the court of the Gentiles. So when Jesus makes his cord and turns it into a whip, and when he's turning over tables, trust me when I tell you, if you see these four-pillared things off into the corner, that is the fortress of Antonia. That is where Pilate would have been sitting. That was the power of Rome. And they sat up there with, with garrisons and legions, and they would look down on this as they watched how Jerusalem submitted to Rome. 
Now all of a sudden, here's Jesus with his whip and his authoritative voice and his fiery eyes driving out these people and they would have fled from all various gates and it would have created a stir. And why? Because God's not glorified. And then, secondly, we learn that when religion points away from God, Jesus always acts. So again, if you're taking notes, I want you to remember when religion goes commercial, God's never glorified. But when religion points away from God, Jesus will always act. Don't even think now that His silence or it seems like people are getting away with it that they are. Jesus springs into action. And remember I quoted Kent Hughes who said, the following verses of our passage only give a glimpse of the drama that occurred. Jesus reached down, picked up some cords. Likely, they were cords that used to lead these animals around. And he braided together a whip. <laughs> and they began to cleanse the temple. And one commenter said that it must appear, he must have appeared to be seven feet tall as the whip began to fly. And I want you to hear the screams and the shocks and the terror and then that utter silence. You know what happens if you've ever been somewhere. Steve and I, just a glimpse of something. Steve and I were down at McDonald's down by the Avalon Mall and it was a crowded place and this, this man walked in and he didn't, ever, didn't even consider the lines and he just went right up to the counter to order. And the rest of us, Steve and I thought it was rude and we kind of looked at But out of the back, this big burly construction worker said, Hey! Buckle! Who do you think you are? And all of a sudden, the place went quiet. And now there was a showdown between businessman and construction man. And businessman tried to make excuses and he tried to talk his way out of it. And the harder he tried, the more this can... Where are your ethics? I hope you whatever bit... And he mocked this guy. And the more he did, there was just these shocked tones of me and Steve were there. What do you think he's going to do? Do you think there's going to be a fight? And, and you're just, you were shocked in the silence. I, I felt paralyzed. I agreed with the guy, but I was paralyzed by the shock and all of it. Have you experienced this? Now, times that by a million. What would it have been like? Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousands of people shocked as Jesus is doing his thing. MacArthur says apparently the uproar was created and yet contained so that the Roman garrison didn't act, but maybe, he says, they found some satisfaction in this assault on the temple system. Maybe these Roman leaders thought, you know what? Huh. I don't agree with what's going on down there, but I'll tell you, this guy finally calling out. They make fun of us, but they're no better than us. I remember last week I, can, I tried to, to juxtaposition the lion version of Jesus with the lamb version of Jesus. And remember in Mark chapter 3, when he healed somebody on the Sabbath, and the Jewish lawmakers and scribes came and questioned his mercy and his love, and what was his response in Mark 3, 5? He responded to them with anger. How dare you question me? He said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Remember when Herod the Great in Luke 13.32 talked and wanted Jesus and the man who rejected Jesus completely and Jesus said, go tell that fox, I'll come when I come. That's not gentle Jesus, is it? What about when Peter, the Christian, who says to him after saying, thou art the Christ, and he says, I don't want you to go to the cross. Listen, Lord, that's a bad plan. 
when he wanted his will and not God's, what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Again, that's not meek and mild, Jesus. What about in Matthew 23, <coughs> verses 27 and 33, when the religious folks who felt they were all good, felt they were good enough, felt that they knew better than Jesus, now profoundly listen to what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. How fitting. Because this would have just happened. This was getting ready for the Passover, and they did. They literally whitewashed the tombs. They wanted all the whites to be as white. It was just like they washed the city in tide. And they wanted it to be ultra white. He goes in verse 33 and says, You serpents, you brood of vipers. Remember the woman who talked about it as a mother wanting to protect her children? And how Jesus wanted to protect his children? Now today, I want to bring out two last points. When religion goes commercial, God's not glorified. Folks, get that. When religion is commercial, when God's not glorified, Jesus will always act. But thirdly, if you want to write this down, when religion is exposed, you're going to react in one of two ways. Every time. I have seen it. I have experienced it in my own life. And I have seen it in too many lives to count. When religion gets exposed, notice that the disciples have a response. Look at it again, right? Notice what it says in verse 17. And his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples have a response to what Jesus does and the onlookers have a very different response. But remember, I started at the beginning with who is Jesus? The disciples go to the Word of God. They remember Psalm 69. They go to the Word of God and they see in Jesus' action confirmation of the Word of God. The Jews, they demand more than the Word of God. They're not content to say, well, we think somewhere in, in our law that it says something. You know, it's fascinating when you think about it. They would claim to live their lives based on the Word of God. Have you not met people like this today? Who would say, I, I, I believe the Bible but then demand you prove everything outside and over and above the Bible. Seems like a bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? The disciples, they think of Psalm 69.9, where the day David says, zeal for your house has consumed me. Now let me give you a little bit of linguistic background on this word consumed. It actually means in the Greek to be eaten up. It means that I've been eaten up for your house or I'm in a flame. I'm inflamed. Jesus was eaten and inflamed for God's glory, for His name to be holy and praised rightly. I love this video that I showed you two weeks because I'm drawn to the woman like that in our video. I've got to tell you, my eyes well up. I tear up every time. I, and I know she's an actor. But I picture a woman like that and hundreds or thousands more like her in first century Jerusalem or are you offended? Or are you calloused over? See, we often see Jesus' anger and His actions and His authority. And you can sense the embarrassment of the money changers. You can sense the awe and shock of these men who were selling animals and in some sense, you might even feel bad for them because I was remembering that time at McDonald's 
when I completely disagreed with the businessman. But once this construction worker, I mean, just called him out and you could feel the entire restaurant turn on him, there was a bit of me that went, I really feel bad for this dude right now. There was nowhere to hide. He had to stand there in shame and wait for his order to get passed to him and do the walk of shame out. And once he left, everybody kind of laughed and yet said, yeah, and the construction worker was a hero. But there was a part of me that was like, ooh, that's kind of bad. <coughs> but if you consider the woman in our video, she gives us much to consider, doesn't she? She shows us the victimness of this crime. She shows us that this wasn't just some entrepreneurial religious men. She reminds us that people were hurting at the hands of religion. And remember that John says this is a sign. Jesus, John wants us to see Jesus as the providing Messiah at the wedding. He's the Lamb of God who would take care of our sin and give us joy in Christ forever. <laughs> but here, He is now here to cleanse this place. And now we can sing the song that we sang this morning because He lives. Because He lives. What? I can face tomorrow. Because He lives. Today, all my fear is gone. See, I don't have to run from my weaknesses anymore. I don't have to pretend I don't have failures. I don't have to pretend that I'm strong. I don't act like things haven't hurt me or that I don't know how I'm being hurt now. You see, Jesus, the Lamb of God, has come to heal and forgive and to make things new and to provide a way for us to be right and accepted by God. But here, here the Lamb of God is the Lion of Judah. This sign here is that Jesus is the authoritative Son of God. And He has power. What He says He can do, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. But notice the Jews don't ask Jesus. Notice this. In our passage in verse 18, what do they say? So the Jews said to Him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? I want you to notice the Jews don't ask Jesus about the rightness of what He did. Do you ever notice that? They don't say, why did you do this? Or, you're wrong to do this. They never question the rightness of what he did. Rather, they question if he indeed had the right to do it. They don't question what he did. They question, do you have the right to do it? Like, who told you you could do this? <laughs> don't miss that. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus tells these people, not only does he have the right to cleanse the temple, <laughs> but he tells them why. He basically says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Basically, see through it. He's saying, I am the Lord of the temple. I am the Lord of the temple. He is declaring this. He says that holiness and justice will be upheld. And there's no way to fake your way right with God. He says, you can't act religious looking out for number one, and that's the irony of this scene. Annas, the high priest, sold franchises. These people looked good, they acted all uppity, but really thought they were doing a service for the people. They were serving while getting rich. Serving while feeling good about themselves. 
and pity or condescension for those who came to them for help. I've seen this to my shame. I've done it. I've had to desperately go to God and ask for forgiveness from actually doing good things and feeling self-righteous while I was doing it. From helping people and feeling like, Steve, you're pretty good to help those people. Oh, and I conform it with, you know, but for the grace of God, so go I. I know all the right Christian phraseology to say. But what's in the depths of my heart? What's in the depths of our heart? You see, not Jesus. <laughs> he, was, he was zealous for God. Are you? Am I? Do you pine for God to be high and lifted up? Ask yourself, do you? Why do you or why don't you? Why are you reacting the way that you are reacting? And think of these Jewish religious leaders and these profiteers. They had a very different reaction. I really cannot believe they go to them and say, by what sign do you do this? You really want to wonder if Jesus wanted to go... Um, <clears throat> What do you think I just did? I just froze the place. And you're asking me for another sign? Show me anybody else that could have done this. What do you think just happened? Don't miss, and don't miss this, right? For all of their gumption to say, by what right do you do this? They never dare move against Jesus. They don't lay a hand on Him. Because they can't unless He gives Himself over to them. But never forget that this cleansing of the temple starts the ball rolling towards the cross. You'll read about it in Mark 14. Because when Jesus is arrested and He's dragged before the court, the religious court, one of the accusations is He said He would tear this place down. So they remembered it. You ever heard this earthly saying when you do something or something happens and somebody says, oh, don't mention it. Just remember it. Always scares me when people say that to me. Thanks for your help. Oh, don't mention it. Just remember it. These Jewish people, these religious leaders, C.S. Lewis, I think, has the cracker of a comment. He says, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Is that not true? Jesus offers them a sign, but instead of seeing the spiritual, they focus on their building. They are literally prouder of their temple than the God of their temple. Forty-six years we've been building this, and you think you can do it in three days? They thought more about the trappings of their religion than the God who was supposed to be adorned by their religion. They cared more about their tradition and money or making a pretense of being right than caring for people or self-sacrifice and loving the hurting. That's why the woman in our video to me is so powerful. This event was harsh for those who didn't think they needed a lamb. Much less worship or be in awe of the line of Judah. Jesus offers them Himself and they say in effect, hey, Self-proclaimed Messiah? 
our building, our religion, our political system, our social agenda, that will do. Thank you. Now be seen but not heard. And lastly, when Christ is accepted as the lion and the lamb, life makes sense. You see, religion when gone commercial, <coughs> God's not glorified. When God's not glorified, Jesus always acts. As we saw here, when Jesus acts, People always respond in two ways. When religion is exposed, but when Christ is accepted as both the lion and the lamb, I, I would put forward to our passage, life will make sense. Because look at verse 22. Now when the he was in Jerusalem, sorry, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what that he had said this, and notice what the result is. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 22 is the summary of all that's just taken place and put it into its context. It's the reason John included this sign. And once again, you're all the way back to John chapter 20. But I want you to notice the lasting effect of trusting Jesus. Because after he's raised from the dead, which by the way is years later, remember the woman? I didn't get it for three years. I'm a slow learner. But the relationship is still having its effect. You see, what Jesus did drove them to the Word of God and it kept driving there and driving them there. And can I ask us all here today, are you being driven to the Word of God? Or are you just playing with the Word of God? Oh, some of you might say, Steve, listen, I am curious. Okay, but are you committed? Steve, I'm searching, but I'm not desperate. I'm looking for Jesus, but really as an optional add-on, like when I go to buy a car. I want to know, can I have the car, and how much more is it for the Jesus option? There's a lot of people in the West doing this. But are we eaten up, inflamed with zeal? To not know Him and find Him and to be loved by Him and then to trust Him and follow Him and give your life over to Him and see Jesus cleanses the temple. And when He is the Lord of our lives, He cleans us up too. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, what? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to... Say it! Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't fight with Jesus. Don't ignore Him or demand from Him. Simply stand back and be amazed and worship Him and trust Him. And so as we go into another week this morning, let me ask you these application questions. And I want to set up our last song with this. I asked you this last week. Church, if religion, commercial religion, never glorifies God, <coughs> If God is not glorified, Jesus will always act. When religion is exposed, there's only one of two ways you're going to act. You're going to run to God or run from Him. But when you really see Jesus as lion and lamb, life makes sense. So here's my question. Do your words about God match up your life for God? In other words, does your theology work itself out in practice?
Do people who know you, can they honestly say, you know, when it gets a bit weird or quiet or awkward and we have that religious talk and my friend tells me what he or she believes, I'm not shocked because that's how they act and live. When you tell somebody, this is what I believe, are they shocked by that? That's not the reaction somebody should have. What you believe should be obvious in the way you live. Richard Phillips puts it like this, what do we worship, sorry, what we do in worship reveals what we think about God. A church that worships through dry and joyless ritual shows that it believes in an absent God. If all you do is play dress up and you've got lots of traditions and there's nothing there, you're just basically saying, look, we are actually clinging to maybe what once was, but there's nothing here now. We're just trying to make ourselves feel good. Then he goes on to say, a church that stirs up emotional enthusiasm and fills the worship service with entertainment believes in a weak God who needs our spiritual help. See, if, if our church service is structured to get you all riled up and get you all excited, and it's because of the way we form the worship service or because our music drives it or something, and all you have is an emotional response, what are we actually saying? That God is incapable of stirring you up because He's God, and we've got to lend a hand to make it happen. <coughs> he says a church focused on money reveals a God who's unable to meet our needs. I find it fascinating. That those out there who want you to believe in the whole name it and claim it ideology are the ones that beg the most for you to give money. Do you not see the irony of that? The people who say, it's God's will for everybody to be rich. Please send me money. I know someone's daughter here said to them just recently, they have been studying about George Mueller. And if you don't know who that is, you should study it. Because he was a man of faith that very early in his ministry decided he would never ask humans for money. My favorite story of Mueller is actually on his deathbed. Because it is said that through faith he prayed in literally millions upon millions of dollars, built orphanages, and healed and helped thousands of young boys and girls who were orphans in England, in Bristol. On his deathbed, a very skeptical friend and acquaintance came to him because Mueller had prayed for his brother, who was a very rebellious, hardy animal and was a real embarrassment to Mueller. And as he lay on his deathbed, this skeptical friend, this Job's comforter, went to him and said, Mueller, ha, ha, you prayed everything, but you couldn't get your brother saved. And Mueller said, ah, but you got it wrong. I'm dying. My brother's not. His story's not written yet. Mueller died. And listen to me. Fifteen years later, his brother accepted Jesus Christ. That's faith. Does your understanding and presentation of Jesus match what the Bible presents Jesus to be? 
Folks, listen, can I ask us at this church anyway, let's stop apologizing for Jesus. <coughs> let's stop acting like the Bible isn't a living book. When you stand for Christ, don't do it like you think you're defending him. You're not. It was David who said, I rest in the shadow of the cleft of the rock. It's underneath the shadow of his wings. Remember what Paul says in Romans 11? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Then he says, for who is now in the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Listen, Jesus doesn't need you to have his back. He made yours. Just rest in him. As we close, isn't it the obvious question that I ask everybody? Do you know Jesus as both lion and lamb? When asked for proof, right, in our passage, what did Jesus offer up? He offered himself. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He told a shocked, angered, resentful crowd mixed in with relieved, hope-filled looking, mixed audience that day, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up in verse 19. And we've already seen that the priests didn't get it. We already know that the disciples only truly get it after the fact in verse 22. But don't miss this. Jesus put everything about Himself on the line based on one point. And that's why I started this whole sermon with who is Jesus. Because how you answer it, you've only got really one of three options. He was either a liar, He was either a lunatic, or He's God. Jesus says, make your decision based on this. I will rise again. And with Easter less than a month away, J.M. Boyce, that old Presbyterian pastor, said, I will rise again. Easter, he says, the resurrection proved that Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be and that He accomplished what He claimed to have come to earth to accomplish. History has been telling us for over 2,000 years that Jesus existed. Every type and claim of attack has been leveled, but it still remains. Jesus rose again. Amen? Amen. Alright, you're half sound like you believe that. Remember again the video? This lady knew the lion and the lamb. She understood that Jesus was God and Creator and Lord and King and Almighty. But she said He did all this because He's my Savior. He's my Messiah. He's my Redeemer. She saw Him as her propitiation. He took her place. See, justice and mercy and grace collide at Calvary. The holiness of God is satisfied in Jesus and so then mercy and grace can be dropped justly offered by God to us as sinners. <laughs> and you know what the effects will be? We will have a reverence for God in our lives. And it will affect our worship. Wherever we are, you don't just need 90 minutes on a Sunday. May God deliver us from idolatry. May God deliver us from a lower concept of Him than we see in our awesome, transcendent, omnipotent, omniscient lamb and lion. There was a big passion conference this year and one of the pastors says, the greatness of God's majesty is not magnified in hollow efforts to keep commandments. 
Every religion does that. That doesn't make God look great. It makes you look moral. Rather, the greatness of God's majesty is exalted when you are satisfied in Him more than anything, especially when you're suffering. Church, what do you love? What do you cherish? What are you satisfied by? Are you fighting that battle? That's the battle that gives rise and kills all that's evil. And listen, you will never make much of the majesty of God until you know and hate that the ultimate essence of evil is preferring anything to God. Parents, what are you teaching and living for your children to see about how you see God, the Bible, life, and the church? Moms and dads, don't give your kids religion. Give them Jesus. J.M. Boyce, I close with this. There once was a time and was such a fullness in our lives that we were excited and overflowing like the holiest of holies filled with the Shekinah glory. We had awesome visions of God. But then something happened. Instead of our hearts being temples, they became something else. A savings and loan. Perhaps a playhouse, a recreational vehicle, or perhaps a library full of the arcane, irrelevant thoughts. He says, a sty of sensuality. The fullness is gone. It happens so easily. <coughs> if you have come to Jesus and been cleansed of your sin, in the vein of 1 John 1.9, are you still coming for renewed cleansing every day? Does the heart of worship need to be cleansed in you today. David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. That psalm that we all love, Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You want a homework assignment? Go figure out what sheep used a rod and staff for. It was to keep sheep safe. Usually by a crack on the head. David says, I can walk through the most fearful time of my life because I know that when I start to stray, I know when I start to get afraid, I know when I start to shrink back, God's there to keep gently smacking me on the head and going, listen, I got you. You don't have you, I do. Truly, come Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Oh, church, let's confess and accept and trust and obey Jesus as the Lamb of God. So when the Lion of Judah comes, we will rule and reign with Him. And we can truly shout to the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank You for this opportunity to read Your Word, to talk about Your Word, and I pray to preach and proclaim it effectively. Lord, I don't know the hearts and intents of the people I look at as they look at me. Lord, I sometimes quiver at the thought of everybody here if they really knew the innermost version of me. 
And yet you do. And we're going to learn about that next Sunday. Lord, help us to see that when we know you as lamb, we can worship you as lion. Help us to leave this place and want to shout to the Lord. Help us to have a renewed cleansing of our heart. If there are those here that don't know you, oh Father God, help them to run to you and say, Lord, cleanse me of my sin. And that is not weakness. That's wisdom. Oh, help us to stop playing games at the foot of the cross and yet fill our hearts with renewed joy. Jesus, the Lamb of God, fills us to overflowing and Jesus, the Lion of Judah, protects us from evil. Help us to go live this. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.